another saint promoted to glory with Pauline going home to be with Jesus. We're going to miss her here, but uh, boy, she's in a better place. Can you imagine? I just, uh, even talking with Dawn this week, just having that thankfulness. And uh, although our, our celebration for Billy's been postponed, it's not postponed in heaven. <laughs> They're probably still celebrating up there. Um, but uh, that's, that's the goal, guys. We need to keep that perspective. The goal is to finish the race, no matter when or how that comes about. When a, when a uh, saint leaves this earth and enters into glory, we can always celebrate. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 6. I don't know about you, but I like a good mystery movie or book. I like a suspenseful movie. The best thing about a mystery is at some point there's a twist or two and then a big reveal where all the clues come together and you figure out who the guilty party was, right? I remember even as a kid watching Scooby-Doo. My parents had to uh, Nick Scooby-Doo because I would get so into it that I'd run around and I'd hide under the couch cushions and everything else and they're like, this is too intense for you, kid. Uh, but yeah, all that, all that preparation. And so we call that, uh, in the movie business, they call that foreshadowing or even in a book, uh, some clues that point to the ultimate conclusion. And so what you see there is an image of Anakin Skywalker and his shadow looks like Darth Vader, right? He's eventually going to become Darth Vader. How does this kid become that? And so you have this process of um, these glimpses before the big reveal. Now, a good story tells you just enough that you don't figure it out too early. A bad story tells you too much, and then it's obvious, or they don't even tell you enough, so it's impossible to figure out the turning point. The Bible is full of foreshadowing, absolutely full. That's one of the reasons I love teaching the Old Testament so much, is there's so many indicators of what Jesus was going to do in the New Testament. Like Abraham having to sacrifice his son, his only son whom he loved, at a specific place, the very exact place where Jesus himself would die on the cross. Or Judas selling his brother Joseph into slavery, for 30 pieces of silver, his brother who would become the savior of the known world at the time. Or Jonathan preparing the way for David to become king like John the Baptist did for Jesus. So today's one of those passages where you have some of that foreshadowing. It doesn't seem like much on its own, but uh, it'll, it'll give us some clear foreshadowing into what Jesus would eventually bring. Zechariah chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. Then I looked up again and saw four chariots coming from between two bronze mountains. The first chariot was pulled by red horses, the second by black horses, the third by white horses, and the fourth by powerful dappled gray horses. And what are these, my lord? I asked the angel who was talking with me. The angel replied, these are the four spirits of heaven who stand before the Lord of all the earth. They are going out to do his work. The chariot with the black horses is going north. The chariot with the white horses is going west, and the chariot with the dappled gray horses is going south. The powerful horses were eager to set out to patrol the earth, and the Lord said, Go and patrol the earth. So they left at once on their patrol. Then the Lord summoned me and said, Look, those who went north have vented the anger of my spirit there in the land of the north. This first section of this chapter 
follows the encouragement of the previous chapter, that God's judgment was going to fall on every thief and liar in the land. He was also going to bring his judgment on their oppressor, Babylon. And here we have a picture of what is happening in the spiritual realm. And so our constant challenge in our faith is to see everything we face through the eyes of eternity. As believers, that's our, con- our, our constant battle. We see the struggles, we see the hardships, we see what's going on in this world, but our perspective is limited. As I've related to you before, there's a big difference between an ant's perspective and a human's perspective. One of my favorite movies as a kid was Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. You guys remember that movie? And they get shrunk down and they're in the yard and they're trying to get back to the house and Legos look like, you know, condominiums and ants are, are huge and when you're in that perspective, you don't see the big picture. And so our challenge is always to say, what's really going on in the spiritual realm? And so this world is full of national powers raging. During that time, it was the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire, only to be taken over by the Persian Empire and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And so huge, colossal power struggles. It's easy in our time period to get overwhelmed and fearful. We struggle and, and, and just fall apart depending on who's in office here in the U.S. We're worried about the ever-increasing power in China, the military coup in Myanmar, what's happening in the Ukraine and Russia. And so we just kind of wonder, where are you, God? What's going on? What's happening? And I love passages like this because we don't see God ignorant of world events or the struggle for power. In, in fact, many times in Scripture... Jesus, or God, predicts what's going to happen in these empires and world powers. If you read the book of Daniel, even the vision that God gave Nebuchadnezzar of the, the golden statue, right, with the gold and silver and bronze and, and clay, and all of that is a prediction of the future empires. And so God is at, as outside of time. He's not without knowledge of what's going on in the world, and he's in control. In fact, he uses the situations we find ourselves in as tools to build his ultimate goal and plan in our life. Now, we don't always see that, not in the moment, but he does have a plan. So much like the vision in chapter 1, there are four horses with riders. Unlike chapter 1, this is not single horses with riders. This is a pairing of horses pulling a chariot. This would mean that their assignment is different. The assignment in chapter 1 was a scout troop. They were to go around the world and and see what was going on and report it back to God. Here, when you have chariots and horses lined up, you're prepared for battle. A whole different circumstance and scenario. And there were four horses, four different colors, set on four different directions, like the directions of a compass. So what that tells us is that there's not one place on earth that God isn't watching over. There's not one place on earth that's outside of his sphere of control and his ability to bring protection and punishment. They're also said to come from two bronze mountains, and each horse is described with a different color, with a black one sent north so God can vent the anger of his spirit there. Now, again, I did some research, had some help doing some research on this. Uh, I found a lot of descriptions for why the horses were different colors with no clear, definitive explanation. And so as a pastor, I really hesitate to say, this is what their colors mean. So I'm not going to do that. 
But what I do want to tell you is, what we see in this passage is God's plan. It's clear, it's decisive, and it's powerful. God is in control. And he raises up people, and he lowers them. He raises up empires, and he lowers them, all according to his good purpose and plan. And so this, these messengers coming from the bronze mountains points to the fact that they're not normal messengers. This isn't a, a group of men. These are angelic beings designed to do God's bidding. Who was the northern kingdom that God was venting his fury upon? Most likely the Persians who would fall to the Greeks. But the point is, every earthly kingdom and dynasty has a time limit. Everybody's on the clock. North America is on the clock. The USA is on the clock. Every nation is on the clock. If you don't believe me, take a trip to Europe and see what the ruins of these great world powers. See what's left of it. Go to South America. Go go visit the, the budding city of the Mayans. Or the Aztec. No, they're not there. I mean, the remnants are, but they're gone. So, so consider that. God raises and lowers, and we don't need to be tossed to and fro by how the world power struggle because our God wins and his plans are perfect. Verses 9 through 15. Then I received another message from the Lord. Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah will bring gifts of silver and gold from the Jews exiled in Babylon. As soon as they arrive, meet them at the home of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Accept their gifts and make a crown from the silver and gold. Then put the crown on the head of Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Tell him, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Here's the man called the branch. He will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. Then he will receive royal honor and will rule as king from his throne. He will also serve as priest from his throne, and there will be perfect harmony between his two roles. The crown will be a memorial in the temple of the Lord to honor those who gave it. Helda, Tobijah, and Jediah, and Josiah, son of Zephaniah. People will come from distant lands to rebuild the temple of the Lord, and when this happens, you will know that my messages have been from the Lord of heaven's armies. All this will happen if you carefully obey the Lord, obey what the Lord your God says. Here again, we see God's foreknowledge. He tells Zechariah about three people that will bring specific gifts of silver and gold from the exiled Jews out of Babylon, and they're going to be at Josiah's house, and he's to accept these gifts given to him. He knows everyone's name. Helda, Tobijah, and Jediah. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing these names right, but God knows their names. And so this shows us that every person has a role to play in building God's kingdom. Some provide resources, others deliver the gifts, and others make something out of what has been shared. You should know that God knows your name, and you have a role and you have a calling, and you have giftings, and whatever that may be, it may not be mine, it may not be someone else's, it may be different than everybody else in your family, but God knows your name. And as you see at the end of the passage, these individuals will be honored within the temple for the rest of, uh, until the temple falls apart again. Isn't that amazing? All these guys do 
are delivered this gift of silver and gold, and then there's a memorial set up to them. Don't downplay the small things that God is doing in your heart and life. God delights in the obedience of small things. Please don't minimize that. Zechariah's role here is to make a crown out of this gold and silver and put the crown on Yeshua's head. Now, let's talk about Yeshua. Let me remind you, in chapter 3, we learned about who Yeshua was. We got this amazing courtroom setting where Satan is accusing Yeshua to God, and he's saying, you can't use him, he's worthless, look how awful and terrible and dirty he is, and God, instead of rejecting Yeshua, he rejects Satan's accusations and said, he's like a burning stick plucked from the fire, he's my chosen tool. And so, uh, it wasn't Yeshua's goodness that made him worthy of the calling, he was guilty and dirty and and in need of a change. And so we see God replacing his soiled clothes with, with white clothes, with clean clothes. The soiled clothes were symbolic of his sin and his shortcomings, and the, and the new clothes was about his salvation and his ability to, to be the calling of the high priest and, and, uh, and to rebuild the temple. At that time, it seemed strange to me, but Zechariah interjects in chapter 3 and says, he needs a new turban for his head as well. A priest is supposed to have a turban. It's essential for his priestly duties. In fact, the culture said any man within the presence of God had to cover his head. That's why even Jewish men to this day wear a kippah on their head. It seemed like a weird detail at the time, but now that we're in chapter 6, it makes sense. Yeshua was given a charge to follow God carefully and to serve Him, and as a result, He'll have authority to accomplish his calling in the temple. Finally, verses 8 through 10 of chapter 3 say, Listen to me, O Jeshua, the high priest, and all you other priests. You are symbols of things to come. Soon I am going to bring my servant the branch. Now look at the jewel I have set before Joshua. A single stone with seven facets. I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And I will remove the sins of this land in a single day. And on that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit with you peacefully under your own grapevine and fig tree. He tells Joshua in chapter 3, you are going to be a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come. What I'm going to do with you, I'm going to make you a living illustration of, of the kind of things that the Messiah is going to bring. And we get this initial prophecy of the branch. This was true as we related in that message that Yeshua's name was actually adopted by Jesus himself. Yeshua or Joshua in, in Hebrew in the Old Testament, the Greek terminology in the New is Jesus. So he's been told, part of your calling and experience is to prepare the people and exemplify for them what my ultimate plan, this great mystery, this final conclusion is going to be. And so Scripture tells us what's going to happen through Yeshua's life is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Now let's look back at chapter 6 and reread verses 12 through 15. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Here is the man called the branch. 
He will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord, and then he will receive royal honor and rule as king from his throne. He will also serve as priest from his throne, and there will be perfect harmony between the two roles. The crown will be a memorial in the temple of the Lord to honor those who gave it, Helda, Tobijah, and Jediah, and Josiah, son of Zephaniah. People will come from distant lands to rebuild the temple of the Lord, and when this happens, you will know that my message has messages have been from the Lord of heaven's armies. All this will happen if you carefully obey what the Lord your God says. Now, we know why in the previous vision that Yeshua's head was left uncovered, right? It wasn't meant for a turban. It was meant for a crown. God had a plan. So Yeshua has already been told that God is going to send someone else, we know this, to be Jesus, and that he'll be referred to as the branch. But now here in chapter 6, Yeshua is called the branch. And we're given an explanation why. He will branch out from where he is and build the temple of the Lord. And so it was on Yeshua to rebuild the temple of praise. Ezra was very much involved with the rebuilding of the temple. But Yeshua being this high priest, it was important for him to reestablish what worship looked like. But when we look at Jesus, as Yeshua was the foreshadowing of it, as we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus was the branch and that he would build the temple of the Lord that would last for eternity. Because we understand that Jesus literally was the temple of the Lord. The body that he had on this earth had within it the spirit of the living eternal God. And so that's what a temple is. A temple is the place where God's presence resides. And that's why the temple doesn't just have to be an outward structure like a church. Jesus will eventually make a way for the temple to be within us as well. Jesus himself alluded to this when he said to his disciples, I'm going to destroy this temple in three days and, and then rebuild it. And so the people overhearing that was like, what is it? And in fact, they even accused him of that before uh, the Sanhedrin. This guy said he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it, and this, he's crazy. He was talking about his body. I'm going to die on a cross, and in three days I'm going to be resurrected. But his ultimate goal was for each of us to be a temple of the Holy Spirit, where every individual could have that close proximity to the eternal God, that in the core of our being, our heart, God could reside there. The really crazy thing is, is the crown itself. Because Zechariah is supposed to place this crown on Yeshua's head and then describes the branch being both king and priest, creating a perfect harmony between the two roles. But history does not record that Yeshua became a king. He remained high priest, but not a king. And so, again, this moment, this action is not him establishing Yeshua as king. He's pointing to the one who would come that would be both king and priest. He was a foreshadow of the one to come. Jesus' role was to be that king of kings and the great high priest. The first time we see any kind of king or priest fitting this role, it's in Genesis. We see it as Abraham has conquered the kings that have invaded the land, rescued his nephew Lot, and as he owns all the wealth in the area, 
the first thing he does is give 10% to the Lord. He establishes the tithe, and he gives it to the king of Salem, who will, that area will eventually be called Jerusalem, and the king's name is King Melchizedek, right? Later on in Hebrews, we're told that uh, Jesus came within the order of, Mel or Romans chapter 7, I'm sorry, Jesus himself would come as a king in the order of Melchizedek. But he's described as priest of God most high. And Psalm 110.4 says, The Lord has taken an oath. He will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And so there's multiple prophecies that point to the fact that the Messiah, Jesus, would be both king and high priest. Now, it was forbidden for this to occur prior to this moment. After Melchizedek, there were other people that had claimed that, but it was not in good accordance. Uh, as I learned in seminary, Dr. Oswald, a question that I had always in Scripture was, why was God so harsh with Saul and, and forbid him to be king? You remember the scenario where they were ready to fight the Philistines, King Saul was, and his men were scared, and, and they were to come to battle, and, and Samuel was to come along and perform the sacrifice of worship before they went into battle, and Samuel doesn't come, and so Saul kind of freaks out and does the sacrifice himself, and then as the last embers of the sacrifice are burning out, here comes Samuel, and I always get this mental picture of, of Star Wars, Episode 4. When Obi-Wan first shows up on the scene and the sand people are there and he kind of comes up with his robe and he's... I, I, that's the vision I always get in my head. I know it's weird. But Samuel shows up and he said, what, what did you do? What are you doing? He said, well, you were late, so we were ready for battle and I couldn't wait any longer. And, and he said, God's rejected you as king. And I always thought, why? It's because Saul, who was the king, also took on the role of high priest. And any king that took on the role of king and priest would eventually be a god unto themselves because those fears have crossed over into one person. That's why in ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh himself was considered one of the gods. And why in the founding of our nation, we created a separation between church and state because they understood many of our founding fathers coming from the Anglican church where the government in England controlled the church, and they saw a lot of corruption and abuse coming from that. And so these spheres cannot be crossed. Anytime the, the governmental sphere and the religious sphere are crossed over, especially in, in, in an individual, it's not good. It causes destruction and brokenness and heartache. But here in this prophecy, he says, the branch will come, and he'll take the kingship, and he'll take the priesthood, and he'll bring it together in perfect Harmony. Only God can do that. Only God himself can fit both roles perfectly. He's the only true eternal king. And only Jesus could fit the role of the great high priest. He was the bridge between humanity and God. And so that's the role of a high priest, is to be a bridge between the people and the God, to bring their prayer requests, to bring their concerns, to be the voice of the people to God and hear God's voice to them and deliver it to the people. But now Jesus, being the bridge, being the great high priest, he is our advocate to the Father. He is our way to speak directly to God eternally, and he's done that so lovingly for us. Now we live in a day and an age where every nation is a part of the temple of God. 
I, I, I'll never forget walking into the garden tomb in Jerusalem and the realization Pastor Sean and I had. I don't know what I expected. I, I, I thought I'd have some surreal experience entering into this place where Jesus' body might have been laid. But you know what? It was a hole. <laughs> and the realization was the Spirit of God entered the tomb when I walked in and left when I left because now I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it was like, whoa! And so the end of this prophecy in Zechariah says every people group will come to establish the temple. Guys, the gospel, every time the gospel goes forth, every time somebody receives Jesus as their Savior, they become a temple, a place where God's presence resides. That's awesome, right? Even this, this week, with Pauline going homeward, and, and, and Dad and I were with Dawn soon after it happened. Her body was there, but she wasn't. Her presence was no longer in that place, and, and no longer was God's presence in that place either because she was not there. Our bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit when we walk in relationship with Him. It's an amazing thing. Can you imagine, though, between the creation of this crown and 400 years later until Christ's birth, this gold and silver crown intertwined sat on a pedestal in the temple? I, this is news to me as I read Zechariah. They actually had a pedestal set up in the temple, said it was dedicated to these named individuals, which I'm not going to try to pronounce again. And so every time a priest would walk past this, they'd be reminded of the fact that when the Messiah comes, he was going to be the high priest and the king for 400 years. The branch, the branch, the branch is coming. And yet when Jesus did come, when he did come, it wasn't this crown they placed on his head, did they? It was something else intertwined. It was thorns intertwined and placed on his head. For him to be king and priest, he had to take on the result of our sin first. And if you read Genesis chapter 3, I picked blackberries the other day. <sighs> is it worth it? Sometimes I think it is and sometimes I don't. Thorns and thistles are the result of sin the destruction that we brought on the earth. And so instead of wearing this gold and silver crown, he had to wear the crown of our sin and our heartache and our pain and our death before the other one. The passage ends with a charge to Zechariah and Yeshua, but to all of us as well. All of this will happen if you carefully obey what the Lord your God says. See, our obedience has a part to play in this. God's ultimate good plan will happen either with us or without us, but the best way he wants to work is through his people being obedient to him. He doesn't want to work in spite of us. <laughs> he wants to work through us. And so he said, you want to see this stuff happen? Be obedient. Be obedient. What does that obedience look like for you? Well, for some of you, 
It's taking the stuff that God's blessed with you and giving it where he says to give it. For others, it's to receive the blessings that others give you and share it with others. For, for some of you, those of you that have different skills, I was just talking to Samuel. He's got a gift in music, a French horn player. You know what I play? Nothing. I had my, my, my first piano teacher taught me two lessons and told my parents, I can't teach this young man. He won't sit still long enough. I had a, a month lesson on a drum pad. And I quit because I was like, I don't want to learn a pad. I want to learn a set. I just didn't have the patience, the gifting for that. But the gifts that I do have, I give to God. So you can spend your time decrying the gifts that God hasn't blessed with you with, or you can take what you have and give it to him. Whether it's five loaves and two fish. Whether it's gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Or a widow's mite. That's what we're called to do. His ultimate good plan will be accomplished. So I want to end with the question. Who is wearing the crown in your life? Are you wearing the crown? Are you master of your own destiny? Are you, do you have a death grip on yourself saying, I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what? Definition of sin. My right to my way no matter what. Guys, let's just be honest. We make poor, pitiful gods. We're in control of nothing. Take that crown off if you're wearing it. Maybe some of you still have a crown on a pedestal. It's there. You see it. You're not really wearing it, but you really don't want to place it on the head of Jesus. You're just getting by. I'll wait on that. I'll, I'll delay that. How tragic, how tragic to think historically that Jesus is walking through the streets of Jerusalem. He's teaching in the temple. He's there. This crown has been waiting for him for 400 years, and no one places it on his head. No one. It just sat there collecting dust. Don't wait to crown Jesus Lord of your life if if you're waiting, you're going to struggle needlessly. Now, I will tell you that once you crown Jesus Lord of your life, that doesn't mean your life gets easier. <laughs> it gets harder in a lot of ways. You're going to have more struggles in different ways than you've had before. You're going to think, oh, I, I thought life would get easier. Well, no, because you're not in the enemy's control anymore, and he wants you to go to hell with him, the place he's doomed to go, not you. The beauty of it is, is that when you crown Jesus, God and Lord of all, you follow him. And everything parts where he steps. Nothing can stand in his presence. Remember, his chariots are going to the four different directions. He's in control. And so I'm not saying your life will be easy, but you won't be doing it alone, and you can stand in the power of the risen Savior for the rest of your life. Never forget that Jesus is the king that rules for eternity. He's good, he's honest, he's true and loving, and he reigns. So let's put that crown on his head and live accordingly. Jesus, I thank you for your word, your presence, your truth. 
I thank you that you know each one of our names.